Welcome back, communists. Hello, all of you communists out there, enemies of the state. And socialists, we'll let you in. Come on. Yeah, for real. All you leftists. Anarchists, anybody. Anybody. Comrades. Yeah, pals. We are going to talk about part two of Open Veins of Latin America today. And part three. The rest of and the book. part three. <laughs> the rest of the book. Yes, the rest of the story. Ah, oh, people say that I have a soothing voice. I've heard this anyway. <laughs> Not to brag, but Paul Harvey. I mean, Paul if we Harvey could only Harvey. be that gentle and soothing, we'd soon have a communist insurrection on our hands. But a very soothing one. Yeah, chill. A super chill <laughs> transfer of power to the people Soviets, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> just give up your stuff. It's fine. Uh, yeah, so where did we leave off with this? All right, we covered part one in the first episode so go back to listen to that if you haven't mm-hmm. and basically if i can give some quick christine summary for the people kind of recap yeah do it basically we're talking about latin america and how they got really fucked over by conquest and then mm-hmm. subsequent resource extraction basically trapping them in this cycle where because they were so far behind like materially because their resources were stolen. Now Mm. they can't like develop their own industries and trade also prevents them from doing that, like trade laws and shit like that. Yeah. So basically they're, they got fucked several times. It's it's the short story. And I think you brought up an important point that it builds on itself, right? Mm -hmm. It's self perpetuating. So that initial destruction, that initial, you know, violent accumulation of capital at the end of a bayonet, you know, at the, at, by force Mm -hmm. that put the imperialist countries at the in the position of like you said being advanced compared to the people they've held back and so then they're able to continue to do that it creates that cycle of dependency i would say there's also cycles within cycles in this book you got the boom bust cycle which we talked about last time Mm mm-hmm and then you also have kind of the dictatorship cycle that happens in a lot of these countries where they uh, have a resource and are trying to either nationalize it or like develop it. And the U S comes in and says, actually, no, we're going to start a war and take that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they destabilize the political system overall there, like any sort of trust in institutions out the window. And so that's why you see this kind of cycle of dictators start to happen because once it's shown to you that, Hey, when you don't like what the government's doing, just (laughs) coo it and put, do another one. That's what you start doing. Yup. All right. And now, yeah, do you think that's a good recap? I think so. I think in the first part, it was kind of shown through the different natural resources, these, these cycles we're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. with silver, with gold, diamonds, with, with then later with, with agricultural products, sugar, mm-hmm. uh, with um, rubber, coffee, any of these, whether it's whether it's through actual direct slave labor or near slave labor, the extractive process, draining people yeah, to absolutely. fuel this, like that was the same. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's important to remember both the initial genocide and then yeah the brutal working conditions that killed even more people and then the hunger that kills even more people because these countries end up being poor. So all around very, very bad. And in contrast to that, you had the 
he had people's resistance. I think that was something that Galliano was really mm. putting forward a number of times was uh, that people were resisting against this, even though they were getting crushed, they were still trying to do something about it. You know, whether it was just slave revolts domestically, whether it was independence movements in different countries or like the Mexican revolution, more of a social revolution there. Mm-hmm. People were trying to do something about their conditions. Let's get into part two. Okay. So, yeah, let's start with part two. Part two of, again, Open Veins of Latin America. We haven't said the book title this episode yet. (laughs) By the way, that's what we're doing. Open Veins of Latin America, Five Centuries of the Pillage of a Continent by Eduardo Galeano. And we're starting part two, titled Development is a Voyage with More Shipwrecks Than Navigators. My subtitle for this section was Imperialism, It Still Sucks. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, accurate. Yeah. Uh, Can I give another another fake fake summary, I guess? Fake summary. Well, I think it's substantive. A lot of times in my notes when I get to your summary, I'm just like, yeah, good summary. (laughs) (laughs) I'm done here. All right. For the people, Christine's for the people summary. Chapter four here, Tales of Premature Death. Basically, Britain took over. They had all the capital, if you recall, in the first uh, part of this episode, we talked about how they were the ones, like Spain wasn't necessarily benefiting monetarily from the conquest. They owed a bunch of other people. And Mm -hmm. I think we talked about Britain in terms of like the war with Chile and stuff like that. So Britain had their fingers in a lot of pies and were really pulling the strings. Those are two bad metaphors. You should not put your fingers in pies and also pull strings. That's weird. Yeah, you'll get the pie innards all over the strings. And you might swallow a string, which is dangerous. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Britain had the capital, the manufacturing, and the naval power. And they basically made it so none of their colonies could manufacture. So they were forced to buy British products. Mm -hmm. And then only after Britain was established as like the guy, basically, did they allow these companies, these companies, these countries to engage in quote unquote free trade. Yeah, very good. So thank you. Britain engages in like this protectionism to start with. And they're just like making sure that their industry develops without competition until, you know, it's, it's too late. Become, it <laughs> comes to a point where it's like, okay, we want, yeah, we're dumb. We're good now. We're advanced now. And we want to, we're hungry for more. Our domestic market can give us some profit, but we would like more. And so we need markets someplace else. So they go and they start exporting free trade to all these other places because now it's gonna help them can we get into those terms he uses them a lot in this so just give me some basic baby summaries definitions of protectionism and free trade what are those things all right well to start with free trade uh free trade refers to like removing tariffs or taxes or trade restrictions between countries removing or lowering those Theoretically, right, you make it easier to trade between all these countries. Uh, it's good for strong economies that focus on finished goods or processed commodities, oh, right? Okay. It's good for them because those draw a higher price. Yeah. Right? It is better for them than it is for ex- economies that rely on exporting raw materials. Mm, okay. Because raw materials have a low price. So if you don't put in place any sort of tariffs or taxes or anything like that to change that, those guys are not going to get much money from it. 
Oh, that sucks. Because that makes sense. Like you, well, okay, it kind of makes sense and it kind of doesn't. Because I was going to say there's more labor put into refining something. But like, still like making something is also labor. Like if you're farming, that's still labor. If you're fucking mining, that's really difficult labor. I guess the pure economist argument would just be, okay, uh, the finished product has to take into account I had to buy this sort of labor intensive thing first. And then I had to do more labor to it. So it'd be more money, I guess. Yeah. But as we'll see in this, it seems like they buy these raw materials for a song. Yes, uh, for sure. (laughs) Or they steal it. (laughs) Yeah. Why buy when you can steal? Uh, That can be, you know, revolutionary, but this is not a revolutionary application of that. (laughs) (laughs) Protectionism, the other term, is the opposite. So protectionism is protecting a country's industries through tariffs or taxes or trade restrictions between country. So what you do is you make it more expensive mm. for people in your home state. You make it more expensive for them to buy other countries' products by placing okay. a tax and stuff on them. Okay. Is that what we did with that China thing like a couple years ago? Uh, yeah, that's what they were. That's what <laughs> they were doing and, and trying to, you know, everyone was yelling, oh, it's a protection. They don't know what it means. But yeah, that's what it that's what it is. OK. It's good for mm-hmm. weak economies because it helps them develop a domestic industry. Mm-hmm. All you're doing is you're preventing people in your country when they go to the store, stuff from other countries are going to be more expensive. So they'll buy yours. Mm-hmm. So you're protecting a domestic market. So that's good when you're building up your like industrial forces. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Britain did this to start out. So, and the U.S. did this also. Mm-hmm. It helps you grow. It helps you not get crushed by overseas competition. And if you're doing it right, you use that money and you pour it back into the development of your industry. Yeah, that makes so sense. So that it becomes strong. And then you can take the restrictions off once you're inflicting it on other people. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, quick note on free trade. Longtime listeners will recall that I made a very bad sculpture about this subject in college. <laughs> <laughs> it was stupid. It was supposed to be a connect sculpture, sculpture, and it was these two dudes. Like I had them on a a crank, and they would go back and forth like a seesaw, and they would kiss money back and forth. Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's free trade. So that's not what free trade is. But <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I failed. It was it was designed to. It was fine. I just had to pass. <laughs> So yeah, that's kind of the basic thing. Does that make sense generally? Yes, yes. It, it makes sense because I have read this stuff and I like I know of examples of that already. Like abstractly, that's kind of complicated for me. Like yeah, but it makes sense in the context of this. Let's which okay. we should get into. So building off of those two definitions, and like you said, you know, we have ample examples in the book. Galliano uses a quote from Marx mm. uh, to talk about the fight about free trade mm-hmm. saying quote all the destructive phenomena which unlimited competition gives rise to within one country are reproduced in more gigantic proportions on the world market if the free traders cannot understand how one nation can grow rich at the expense of another we need not wonder since these same gentlemen also refuse to understand how within one country one class can enrich itself at the expense of another what this brings to mind is like this is what we're what we're seeing in, in the book is is this globalized example of capitalism's exploitation mm-hmm. like within one country when reading the manifesto and we're reading when we're reading Engels, he's talking about within one country right the capitalists are preying upon the proletariat 
And then globally, the imperialist countries are preying on the global south. For sure. I I think we made a lot of those parallels last time, too, talking about, like, you know, blaming the poor for being poor. Like, that's something that happens both on, like, the domestic scale and, like, the international scale. Like, all of these patterns are connected and for a reason. Like, it's the same system, just bigger. Yeah. It's serving the interests of those imperialist countries and they don't like it when you don't play ball mm-hmm. and we had an example in the book of this society in paraguay that was not playing by the rules uh, established by the orders this story was crazy <laughs> <laughs> like, all right okay so there was this guy gaspar rodriguez de francio and he basically took over right he he was very mm-hmm. popular crushed the oligarchy sounds great but he also like took away political liberties. But I don't know. The book was like, well, the only people that needed it were like rich people. So I don't know. I mean, he was a an old school tyrant. I mean, he was a dictator. Like it was just him. That's what I wrote. I was just like in my notes. I was like, benevolent dictator. Dot dot dot. Worth it? Because <laughs> like he did some cool shit. Yeah, he was dictator for life at some point. He was like you know, consul. He was like ruling with some other people, and then eventually they were just like, dude. You do it. <laughs> like, but okay. But they didn't have hunger, didn't have war, didn't have illiteracy and started using. So like Paraguay is like, it's landlocked. So they started mm-hmm. using that as a way to isolate basically and start developing itself instead of being so focused like those other neoliberal leaders were doing on like outside trade. Yeah. Yeah. So becoming like self-sustaining, which is good. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, was a better path of development, I think, than trying to export everything. Just just turning yourself open for the Europeans to plunder you. Yeah, yeah. So he did some cool stuff. Okay, tell me about the bad stuff he did, though. So he did some negative things. Okay, here we go. He didn't talk about those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a historical figure. You got to talk shit about them, at, you know, in yeah, some yeah. way. You got to. You just got to. No heroes. <laughs> One is he abolished higher education. Don't do that anymore. Mm, okay. Well, he said, because, you know, it's we have limited finances and we only we need to do these other things. You know, we can't do that. However, he opened the first public library, stocked it with books that were confiscated from his opponents. Okay. And, uh, you know, books didn't have any taxes or anything on them. That's cool. So, like, you can't go to school, school, but you can read at home. And in his context, like, school, school, you know, higher education was an elite sort of thing Mm -hmm. so that wasn't like he was saying sorry poor people you can't go to college anymore because you weren't going to college yeah he executed some people okay you know classic (laughs) right (laughs) anytime someone comes up it's like but they executed people which happens i guess yeah it's kind of a thing some conspirators or whatever who are supposed to be leading some sort of plot against him he outlaws like political opposition (laughs) okay that one's bad has this uh, underground prison called the Chamber of Truth. Oof. I mean, cool name, but bad, bad concept. Used some prison labor. Uh, oh, yeah. Who doesn't? He got, he got rid of flogging. Cool. But replaced it with uh, a death penalty. Oh, God. <laughs> that was quite cruel. He, uh, the executions were carried out at a stool under an orange tree outside his window, like outside his house is where he would have people executed. Oh my gosh. To avoid wasting bullets, 
Most of the victims were bayoneted. Whoa, 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 whoa. That sucks. Okay, some problem areas, you know, room for improvement. <laughs> or give a report card on it, and it's like, it doesn't play well with others. <laughs> yeah, has some control issues. <laughs> but besides that, I think the points that you're raising are right, that Paraguay under his rule was pursuing this this path that was more self-sufficient mm-hmm. and less exploitative. Yeah, they started nationalizing stuff. They... 98% of the territory was public property. Peasants worked state-owned lands, and they finally, they like, returned kind of to the land in a way. They they went back mm-hmm. to just doing, like, true two crops of year instead of mm-hmm. destroying their soil. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good environmentally as well. Yeah, yeah. Basically, Britain got mad. <laughs> they didn't like that they were doing this, right? I don't know what problem they would have with this. I mean, <laughs> doesn't seem that bad, right? So, what from what I understand, it sounded like they were freaked out that it was going so well for them because they're like, well, shit, someone else, some other Latin American country could be like, we should do that too. And then guess what? We don't have any more stuff to steal. Right. Yeah. You didn't want this example of self-sufficiency when you're really... <laughs> Really trying not to have self-sufficiency, trying to have dependency. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Britain gets involved. <laughs> they start some shit, basically. Yeah. They start something called the... Uh, War of the Triple Alliance. Yeah, the War of the Triple Alliance, also called the Paraguayan War. Oh, okay. What would you say a brief kind of outline of how that, <laughs> how <laughs> that begins is? Basically, Britain pays off Brazil... And Argentina and Uruguay. I mean, not like direct, it was their banks that, that paid them off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so they first they started Brazil and Argentina invaded Uruguay and Paraguay was like, man, we had a treaty like we got to we got to go in there. And then all three of them teamed up against <laughs> Paraguay. So <laughs> and a uh, fun fact, the treaty um, that combined Brazil, Argentina and Uruguay in this war was written by the banks. So that's a good treaty right there. Nice. Yeah. I mean, cool. what could go wrong when you put the <laughs> banks in charge of foreign policy? Yeah, a lot, apparently, because Paraguay's population was decimated. Less than one sixth remained after the war. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, the War of the Triple Alliance, the Paraguayan War, that was from 1864 to 1870. Like you said, it's devastating. Yeah. To all sides. The, the the victors, it says, they were ruined by the cost of the war because they had to borrow so much money to fight it. And so, you know, that just makes them more dependent on Britain. The loser, of course, devastated in terms of population lost, and then pride open. They're pride open to free trade. Now mm-hmm. they're now their puppet governments are put in place that are going to do whatever Britain wants now. Yeah, he kind of introduces this term sub-imperialism, which I thought was really interesting. Yes. And I think also has kind of those like macro and micro applications. But anyway, so it's the idea of, you know, a larger or a more capitalist country like Britain basically mm-hmm. giving orders to its subjugated countries to yeah. to go trample on another country and make them even more subjugated. So in this case, it would be like Britain telling Brazil to go fuck with Paraguay. And for a while, like, especially, you know, after the war, Brazil was in there, like, occupying Paraguay on on behalf of the British. Yeah, it turns them into a henchman, kind of, right? Basically, yeah. And 
more or less at some points they were kind of open about that and just saying like, yeah, we pursue their interests. You know, that's what <laughs> we are their dominant, the dominant uh, enforcer of, you know, first British, then American interests in the region. And you're just like, what the fuck are you on about? Why are you, why do you like that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, two points here. One, I, I, it gives me major parallels to like a domestic economic system of like, using the middle class to crush the lower class. Like that's something that is encouraged. You are encouraged mm-hmm. to try to police how they spend money and to look down yeah. on them and all that shit. Like, because yeah. the kind of implied threat is it could be you. <laughs> yeah. You are, you have more in common with the masters than with the oppressed. Mm-hmm. That's a big goal that ca- that's a big goal of capitalism's uh, indoctrination. Like, you know, that's what it wants people to think. Yeah. And racism too. <laughs> yeah. You're on our side. You're on the you're on the side of superiors. Help us keep those people down because that way you maintain whatever you already have. Yeah. Instead of striving to have what we have, you know. Exactly. <laughs> the other thing that this made me think of, I I think we mentioned this last episode too, is just uh, wasn't it Bolivar or someone who wanted like the whole like South America to be combined or something? Yeah, that's Simone Bolivar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like this is a great example of like when that isn't the case, when there isn't solidarity between these countries, like it is a disaster. Like they're literally being turned against each other and it is a lose-lose situation. Like we said, like they, even the countries that quote-unquote won the war are now crippled with debt. Yeah, and when you're talking about 441,000 people killed. Oh my God. On all sides, you know. Mm-hmm. But disproportionately, on the Paraguayan side, 300,000 about were theirs. It's insane. It's just a massive bloodletting. So for what? Yeah. Over a scrap of paper that the banks wrote. Yeah. For you know? Brazil's budget to be 40% debt payments. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Even the winners. <laughs> yeah. you. Congrats. You won being in debt. <laughs> now you get to be somebody's henchman. Yeah. And I'm not saying this to like shit on brazil or anything like sure. I, they didn't have a fucking choice it's not the people of there either because it's the it's the it's the lieutenants of capital who are there right the the mm-hmm. imperialist stooges who are the government there. yeah the oligarchy i think an important point to bring out here with the discussion of sub-imperialism is that this is kind of a transition to economic imperialism because mm-hmm. uh, you do have like these countries that are nominally independent Yes. But they still nevertheless end up as servants to uh, the imperial countries. Uh, the, the free nations aren't always free, right? They're still dominated by whatever the hegemon, whoever, whatever hegemon holds sway. That's true. I think it's whenever someone hears imperialism, they might think of like, oh, you mean like Britain when they like were in China? It's like, no, I mean, mm-hmm. they're still doing shit. Like, and the U.S. is still doing shit. It's not... It's not over just because, like, there's not a literal American flag there. Also, there's a lot of places where the literal American flag is there. (laughs) And American troops, Puerto Rico and Guam and all that shit. Yeah, no, no, but you're right. It doesn't require this direct application of force necessarily. And when you're looking at it, you're like, well, okay, well, why does this happen to some countries and not others? Surely maybe they chose to do that or something. (laughs) Just dumb choices or something. But again, this traces back to the first part of the book where it's because of that hole that the primitive accumulation of capital put them in. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people, I mean, hopefully not a lot of people, but I think people do turn to like racist reasoning of like, oh, Mm -hmm. they just, they weren't smart enough to... They don't work hard enough. Yeah. They accept those terms. It's like, I mean, we see again and again, they tried not to accept them and they got killed. Yeah. And then once you get to this point, you know, the colonized countries, they cannot take any actions against the imperialists because it's not because there are a ton of troops there. It's because they, they, they're bound up in, in terms of relationships of credit. They're, they're creditors mm-hmm. now. You know, they have to accept these terms of free trade, of railroads being built through and all that and giving land away to the builders of the railroads he talks about. Yeah. And all of this, he says, it's not set up to connect the different cities in the countries. It's to connect all those cities with the port to export this stuff to other countries. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because I I think someone could look on the surface and be like, look, they got railroads. And it's like, those are not for the people. Those are Mm -hmm. for goods that that the people aren't going to use. Yeah, and an interesting parallel to American history here. The Mm. development of railroads in the United States before the Civil War. There were a ton of railroads in the north, and they not only connected cities to, like, ports and stuff, but cities to cities. There was a big network going on. That's how you fucking traveled. (laughs) Yeah, but if you look at those maps in the south before the Civil War, you see cities kind of barely connected. There's a lot fewer railroads, first of Mm -hmm. all, but they're barely connected to each other, but they are all connected. The centers of plantations are connected to the ports. Mm. So they're basically doing the same extractive thing. They're just sending all that to the ports to sell to make money. Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. Because the North was more of like an internal economy of like industrial stuff. And the South (laughs) was all like, hey, buy our cotton, Britain. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, talking about the States, he again kind of draws a parallel, I guess more of a contrast between Latin America and the States saying, the United States saying that because they heavily subsidized manufacturing in like New England and stuff. Like there were literally penalties for not keeping a spinning wheel continuously active in the home, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious. Like someone will bust in be like, are you looming? Are you sewing? <laughs> you better be get back to it. Right. <laughs> it's just great. There was a quote by Ulysses S. Grant there that I found noteworthy. So his quote is for centuries, England has relied on protection has carried it to extremes, has obtained satisfactory results from it. After two centuries, England found it convenient to adopt free trade because it (laughs) thinks that protection can no longer offer it anything. Very well then, gentlemen. My knowledge of our country leads me to believe that within 200 years, when America has gotten out of protection, all that it can offer too, it too will adopt free trade. Mm -hmm, That's kind of what happens. Yeah. (laughs) Not always the smartest guy, but Grant had that one right. (laughs) He got that one. We definitely did that. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, no, you're right that like they were protecting their domestic industry. Later, we'll see once they, you know, once they reach that point, they got powerful enough, then they're going to start exporting that all over. Yeah. And kind of in contrast there, like the South, since it relied on slave labor, was more interested in free trade because it's like, we don't fucking need protectionism because our labor is free. Yeah, and we don't have a domestic market, really. We're not concerned with that. We're just concerned with building our, you know, opulent plantations and everything and leave everybody else. I mean, they're either slaves or we don't care about them. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting that he then turns that lens on the American South, says it's kind of similar there. Yeah. You don't think about it, but. For sure. Okay. Chapter five. 
the contemporary structure of plunder. And so this gets, I think this gets a little more mm, technical. This gets very wonky. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's the classic thing in in history, right, is that you start out with broad sweeps and you're like, oh, Mm -hmm. the Sumerians and everything. And everything lasts for like hundreds of years. (laughs) And then as you get closer to modern times, things start happening in smaller windows. Yeah, it's more granular. Yeah. So this is the chapter I was stuck on for like several months. I would just, I kept putting it off. <laughs> I'd pick it up, read a page and realize I didn't absorb any of it. So let's, let's go. So yeah, in this chapter, we start talking about how imperialism looks in more modern times. We should say this book was written in 1970. So, you know, 50 years ago, modern times, but still, I think a lot of it yeah, holds true. I think so. Right out the gate, he has a shout out to my boy, Lennon. <laughs> he did literally write the book on imperialism. Yeah. <laughs> All he was doing there was trying to talk about like how imperialism has changed in form since when Lennon wrote mm-hmm. in 1916, Imperialism, the Highest Age of Capitalism. What, what, were, what are the changes that we see now? We see a change since World War II from Europe being the dominant imperial master to the United States. Yeah. And we see a change in focusing on public services and mining, dominating those spheres, to oil and manufacturing being the main imperial... Uh, Mode of operation. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. What they pursue. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how many people know that, like... I, I feel, again, if you ask somebody, like, imperialism, how do you think Lenin felt about it? Like, probably a lot of people are like, well, wasn't he like a dictator? He probably was for it. <laughs> you know? Like, I yeah. just... Ugh, sorry. That just, just means when you're mean is what you think most people I think, think a lot of people, is. yeah, it would be like, that's when you declare yourself a ruler and you're like an emperor or something. Yeah. Or maybe they have like a foreign policy lens of it. And it's like, that's when you boss other countries around. Maybe. That's when you invade places. That's in imperialism. I don't think people make that connection. Hmm. I, I guess you could also think of it just like the Star Wars empire. Yeah. You're just bad. <laughs> yeah. You you're, just think of it as it's a dictatorship, right? Like, yeah. he talks about you know there are some changes since then but overall the exploitation is different in form maybe but not in function it still is crushing people using their blood as fuel for the lavish uh, existence of the imperialists same shit new masters Uh, there's a quote here that I, i think people should keep in mind even now today's imperialism radiates technology and progress (laughs) which I think they still do, right? Yeah. Uh, But when imperialism begins exalting its own virtues, we should take a look in our pockets. (laughs) Yes, we should. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) When capitalism is bragging about what it can do to help you, oh, we got innovation, we got progress, we got, you know, all this stuff, like, see what they're actually doing to you. (laughs) They're probably ripping you off. It's a a double-edged sword of like, okay, one... Is it, I think that's a fallacy to imply that we can only get this progress through capitalism and imperialism. Mm-hmm. And then two, the fucking human cost to those things, you know, like it, ain't, yeah. it doesn't come for free. Yes, for sure. I think here in this section, he talks about how hard it is to build a domestic industrial base. Mm-hmm. Even when you're trying to, because like some of the countries were not trying to, they're just, you know, exporting and I'll get my money and the people will die and that's fine yeah but some countries were but they were still finding it hard even when they do what's called import substitution industrialization isi okay 
you still, uh, this is what he starts talking about where you, instead of importing things, you do protectionist stuff and then try to like make that mm. stuff for yourself, for your people. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. There's, there's a fancy term for it called ISI. Okay. Which is just that. When you do that, it require it still requires you at some point to improve your productive forces, right? To make more shit, to get more technology. Mm-hmm. And that's, he talks about how that's where as you still end up having to go get foreign capital get loans to buy that or buy it from the imperialist countries. You still, because of that initial gap, you really can't close it even if you start trying because you end up still in their pocket by having to buy this stuff. And with like how patent law works too, like you're kind of fucked. Mm. Like they're going to charge you out the nose for it. Mm -hmm. That's another part of it. One thing I thought was interesting was um, there's a quote here talking about like this kind of rapid transformation on like a global scale that the phenomenon was superimposed on the previously existing socioeconomic structure, socioeconomic structure without entirely modifying it. What I'm assuming he means by that is basically it's that macro micro thing again, like the, uh, the haciendas and the ecomiendas, they exploited people so they could make money and use it on themselves so one, I think it's that it's the macro micro thing. And I think it's also that they're using those structures to keep that system going, basically. Like if like, again, like if you were a peasant in olden times, and you're a peasant in like the 1970s, shit probably didn't change that much for you. Yeah, different people are getting the money now, I guess. <laughs> and it may be different in scale. But yeah, like it's still not your land. It's still not like your. Mm resources you still don't benefit from this work yeah and i also think he's he's referencing the regional differences here so he's saying that before all these transformations take place you already have like the wealthy port cities and the poor periphery feeding it and Mm. he's saying that like even once you start introducing all these changes it just jumps onto that and so you still see the glittering you know the glittering cities the Mm -hmm. metropolises of the ports and the poor uh, areas uh, piled on outside of that, the slums and everything. So it all just exacerbates existing structures, basically. Yeah, 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 exactly. Bummer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it <fucking laughs> continues sucks. to be a bummer. <laughs> uh, all right. And and part of that, I guess, part of that process is when he talks about the Latin American bourgeoisie existing as this deformed or stunted these agents and functionaries, he says, of foreign corporations, like they, it's, they're not a real independent bourgeoisie that's like trying to pursue its own national class interests there. Yeah. You know, they're not trying to develop a domestic industry or anything like that. They're again, just henchmen. Yeah, I think we grew up with the idea, I mean, like having been, you know, Mexico is a part of our lives in a lot of ways that like everyone, every politician in Mexico is just totally corrupt. Like that's what we grew Mm -hmm. up with. And I think it's easy to hear that. And I think Americans maybe hear this and think, well, that's bad. Like how shitty, like they must be morally bad people. But I think it's also like they're kind of fucking pigeonholed into that. Like as we see in this book, like I don't, I mean, yeah, I think they also can be corrupt and bad people. But like, as we see, when you do try to develop your own industry, uh, it gets taken Mm. down real fast. (laughs) It's hard, I think, in America, in the United States, for politicians to like cut against the grain of the of the forces now of, you know, of interest groups and 
corruption and stuff. Yeah, I mean, even, Capitalism. you know, AOC is the darling of the left or whatever. Well, some some people, at least. <laughs> some people don't like her still. But, um, yeah. but she has to spend so much time and money fundraising. Like, that is literally yeah. part of the job. And there's nothing mm-hmm. she can do to get around that. There's only so much you can do inside the system. And the systems are just so much worse in a country where you're on the other end of the imperialist relationship. For sure. You know, so... It's even less likely that you're going to get somebody who comes out and, you know, takes this populist stance and is like, we're going to use, you know, the power of the people to rise above this. Mm -hmm. That's even harder to do. So you could say, yeah, people should be doing that. I agree. But it's just. It's unlikely. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's not like they're just shitty for not doing it. It's way harder for them to. So he talks about the difference between dynamic and traditional resources or industries, Mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was interesting because I I had never heard these terms, but he says that traditional industry is like your consumer goods. So like t-shirts, cigarettes, whatever people buy, I go to the store and I buy a thing. Okay. And then he talks about dynamic goods are, he calls them intermediate and capital goods. So things like ore or like oil and you know most i would assume mostly stuff from the ground stuff you have to make into other things okay so so things that require more processing kind of yeah so he just talks about how that dynamic stuff is completely in foreign control and it's kind of strangling their entire economy yeah i think the reason he's saying this is because uh of its relationship to trade it seems like Uh, That traditional goods don't rely so much on, they don't have to rely on trade. You can make like like t-shirts, cigarettes, whatever, (laughs) to sell to other places or, but they can, there's something that could be consumed by a domestic market. Anyone can make that. But like, if you're the only place in the world that has like this huge tin deposit, like you're not going to use all that tin and people really want that tin. People really want it. You could use all that tin. You could reuse all that tin if you had a tin refiner, but you don't. That's one of the things there is it requires that, you know, why why he calls them, you know, capital goods or something. It's because you do have to do some more refining to it. And that requires trade because if you're in these countries, you don't have those capabilities. They didn't allow you to build factories. The, I think it's interesting. He's, he's painting these as kind of, uh, a good way to make sense of different factions of capital having different preferences, right? The traditional industries are like better. They're, they're, they're like more okay with like reforms and stuff. Whereas the dynamic industries that are dependent on this trade relationship, they are more tied to this international capital. So they are like more opposed. That makes sense. I mean, you don't hear about a small business owner of a, you know... <laughs> Uh, a rare earth minerals mine, right? Or something. Yeah, mom like, and pop. That's not a oil thing. Refinery. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, I thought that was an interesting way to look at. Okay, like why do we have different political parties in a country that's run by the bourgeoisie? It's because they do kind of have a little bit of differences in preferences that can be that explained by these different forms of industry. And I think it's disingenuous because I I think oftentimes when people are like, yeah, I'm pro-business because I'm trying to protect small businesses. And it's like, again, there ain't a small business of petroleum. Yeah. (laughs) Like you're actually protecting them and they make way more money. So like the percentage wise, that doesn't fucking make sense. (laughs) And there are, yeah, there are different policies that could narrowly target, you know, help small businesses. But yeah. Yeah. Usually when you sign on to be pro-business, that's not what you're talking about. Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm. I have a note on page 216. He talks about Brazil. Mm-hmm. 
signing a deal where they agreed that they would be responsible for all these foreign companies for the debts that they rack up. What the fuck? (laughs) And it makes me just think, you know, oh, why? you know, I'm thinking morons. Why would you do that? But of course Mm -hmm. it's to attract capital, right? To make a a positive uh, business environment and all this. It's every time right wingers will continue to do this. They always do this. And they're like, oh, we got to, we want our state to have a, to be a good environment for business. Oh, yeah. That mean, well, we know all about that here in Texas. We're in fucking Texas. <laughs> we are basically just legs wide open for businesses. <laughs> and, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it that every law that you put in place that's good for businesses is good for people. You know, yeah. we don't have any sort of labor laws that are that allow people to organize here, you know, mm-hmm. right to work. Those are not synonymous, I guess. And anybody listening to this knows business is oftentimes there to fuck you over. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's talk foreign aid. Foreign aid. Okay. Sounds good. See, it sounds good, but I'm going to read you this quote that I fucking loved. (laughs) All right. He writes, aid works like the philanthropist who put a wooden leg on his piglet because he was eating it bit by bit. (laughs) (laughs) True. Yeah. It's, uh, It's not cleaning up the mess that you are making. It's like. You know, busting a window and putting a little Band-Aid on it sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I I don't have it highlighted here in my notes, but I can make a a people summary here. All right. So from what I understand from reading this is one, is is that basically all our our aid, all our loans to these countries. Well, one, it's not aid. Because aid sounds like we're giving it to them. Like, here you go. That's what that is. Right. Yeah. Just helping out. (laughs) Yeah. Like a gift, a donation. But these are actually loans, and they come with big fucking strings attached. And most of them seem like, okay, you now have to only buy things from, like, the U.S., and they're going to be way more expensive. And you can't sell or manufacture your own thing, so, like, fuck you. Yes. That would be my people's summary. That's a good people summary. That uh, just about wraps it up. <laughs> <laughs> but foreign aid, you can look at it as kind of an arm of capital. Because mm-hmm. who is it under the administration of? The bourgeois state, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's not like a big conspiracy. It's not like they're like, ha, here we are. We're going to rule the world through our foreign aid. But it ends up happening that way. I think I, you know, growing up in my little liberal world, I, I would get very annoyed when people, usually libertarians or just like, just conservatives would do this too. Just like, you can't trust politicians. They're all bad and blah, blah, blah. Because they would often use that as an excuse to say like, fuck like social programs because they're going to run it badly yeah i don't know becoming a leftist it's like on the one hand it's like yeah we should we should do more like social programs but Mm. also yeah all politicians are corrupt and it's it's (laughs) not because they're like mustachy people like you said it is because the system is bad yeah they have bad class interests yeah but like i bet like if you talk to those people further and be like okay so do you want money out of politics like then they're like well it's free speech like (laughs) i just (laughs) which one do you want it's fine. It's fine. Whatever. <laughs> it's not fine. But anyway, uh, what's this IMF thing? Seems bad. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So when we get to foreign aid, we have a whole bunch of different agencies involved. Lots of acronyms here. Let's get into it. So the IMF is the International Monetary Fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an international financial institution, which claims that it quote, fosters global monetary cooperation, secures financial stability, 
facilitates international trade, promotes high employment and sustainable economic growth, and reduces poverty around the world. I mean, that sounds good, but it's a bank. Yeah, actually, of course, (laughs) it serves the interests of the imperialist countries. Yeah. So the origins of the IMF, it was set up alongside the World Bank Mm -hmm. at something called the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. Okay. A, A big deal in terms of like the international economic scene. This is... 1944, so it's near the end of World War II, but the war's still going on. So the 44 allied nations hammered out the post-World War II international monetary and financial order called the Bretton Woods System. What's the system? So this is a system that lasted from then till like 1971 when the U.S. left a gold standard. And all of it is like set up to have the international monetary system like backed by gold and based on U.S. dollars. Okay. It faced criticism from the start because, like, the U.S. controlled two-thirds of the world's gold supply, and it was, you know, set up to be backed on that slash the U.S. dollar. So it's really American-centric in that way. Uh, The Soviets criticized it, for example, and didn't join once it was, you know, once it was put together because they said it was like, this is just a branch of Wall Street, basically. Yeah, I I was going to ask why the dollar, why gold seems pretty arbitrary. Uh, yeah, well, they <laughs> they called the shots at that point. They had cool. taken credit for saving Europe. Uh, so <laughs> the IMF, that's where it's set up, along okay. with the World Bank. And what does it do? So for one thing, it watches the economies of the member nations, like it monitors them. Nearly every nation is part of this uh, and reports its economic data to the IMF. They kind of like patrol it and make sure that no country is doing anything too crazy in terms of its impact on international markets. Okay questions yeah one okay what is crazy like there's a wide variety because if you think like china is mm-hmm. a member so china's here and whatever they're doing is considered okay okay uh, the united states is in this and whatever we're doing <laughs> is considered okay so like there's a very wide range but one thing they're doing is we don't have any loans or anything from the imf so it doesn't mm. they're not like too concerned with what we do because we're not That's we're not bad. We don't owe them any money. But if you owe them money, they're way more concerned with what you're doing. We'll get into that. Okay. The IMF is primarily focused on maintaining the international monetary and financial order, just making sure that everything kind of stays the same and works for the capitalists. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask next is if I had a database full of all the world's economies, wouldn't you fucking use that to like make your friends rich? Well, all the country, all member countries have access to all that information. So, Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. It's like a sharing thing. Uh, the IMF draws money from its member countries in a quota system. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's a tax. The richer countries pay lots more than the poorer countries. But the bad side is that this also determines your vote share. So richer <laughs> countries control the vote. That's insane. The U.S. has 16% of the vote in the IMF. Jesus. Japan and China are the next closest with around 6%. Wow. Yeah. We're worth more than Japan and China put together in the IMF's eyes? Yes. Cool. And so the IMF, it also will loan out money using the money that it's got from its quotas. It'll loan money out when countries get into trouble. So it's more of a crisis situation thing. Okay. If countries face like a financial crisis or whatever, or they're about to default on their entire national debt or something, Mm -hmm. IMF will step in and be like, 
here's a loan. Nice guys, right? Not really. They're more like mm. loan sharks. Okay. Uh, because they require borrowing nations to make a lot of what we call structural reforms, which is now we tell you how to govern your country pretty much. Mm. This fits into something called the Washington Consensus, which is a bullshit, terrible thing. What is that? The Washington Consensus is everything we don't like. It's <laughs> deregulation, liberalization of trade, privatization of, of uh, nationalized things, austerity. I don't like any of those things. Those are my least favorite things. Yeah, it's crap. A lot of times, I mean, if you're thinking of a country in crisis, these are really not good things you want no, to be inflicting No, you don't want on austerity. <laughs> that's, that's a bad one. Yeah, and these loans, you know, they wreak havoc in that way, and they almost always increase inequality. What the fuck, man? They want you to be responsible. They want to inflict the right amount of pain on you so you'll never do this again, and they want to make sure they get their money back one way or the other. How are they going to get their money? Well, I guess I don't understand like how they're going to get their money back if these loans seem like they're set up to make this country fail. They make things worse, and the country kind of does fail from a from the point of view of like life is worse. Mm. Oh, but like the capitalists in that country do okay. <laughs> but yeah, if you if you still do have surviving businesses and a surviving government that like can still squish people enough to make this payment, then you're good. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. They're loan sharks, dude. They're, yeah. They're just milking these places. That's pretty bad. I don't like that. Okay. Uh, cool quote from the creator of the IMF policy in Brazil. <laughs> it says some bad stuff. Obviously, the world is unequal. Some are born intelligent, some stupid. Aww. To postulate that national enterprises must have the same access to foreign credit as foreign enterprises is simply to ignore the basic realities of economics. It's just economics, bro. That's just how it is. Nothing personal. I just think everyone from your country is stupid. That's why you're poor. He's just a financial bro. <laughs> God. That's just that like sucks. the market, man. You can't do anything about that. <laughs> Fuck this guy. Uh, that's a big, you know, this, this is, a, I guess, a big uh, component of mm -hmm. economic imperialism, right? It's another mm -hmm. way to get in there and tell them what to do, to get in there and tell them to get to work harder, to make more money for you, because now you've loaned the money and they have to pay back. Yeah, from what I understand reading this, the IMF and these various organizations, it seems like they are specifically set up often like literally with these companies help to benefit these companies, like in terms of resources extraction and stuff like that. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, another organization involved in all that is the world bank. Mm -hmm. It has a few differences. Like it doesn't do quotas. It, <laughs> it does this kind of crazy money shell game thing where it borrows money from governments and banks and individuals by selling them bonds, which are just IOUs. It's just, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll pay you back this later. Mm -hmm. They use that money to issue loans that are focused on development uh, in poor countries, uh, building roads, schools, whatever. Mm -hmm. It faces similar criticisms to the IMF. <laughs> yeah. seems like, we have a quarter of the votes in the world bank. Yeah, yeah. Voting is still controlled by the rich countries because it's allocated by how many shares of the bank you own. So we, you know, the United States controls the World Bank as well. It's development loans and stuff. They, you know, it's not based on emergencies 
but still it's based on developing countries and stuff. It, mm-hmm. they still have a lot of conditions and it's still, uh, those conditions are like geared toward austerity or privatization of things that obviously leads to negative impacts, but good impacts for capitalists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because this <laughs> motherfucker, the chairman of the world bank, Eugene R. Black quote, Foreign aid stimulates the development of new overseas Mm -hmm. markets for U.S. companies and orients national economies toward a free enterprise system, okay, Yeah. uh, in which the U.S. can prosper. (laughs) (laughs) Because you can can say, oh, we're we're helping them develop. It's like, no, you're helping yourself, but... Yes, yeah. And their argument, of course, would be, well, why not both? Why not both is because if you look at the economic data, it doesn't help them. So that's why not both. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and we have a quarter of the votes uh, I mentioned earlier. All of Latin America, which is made up of 22 countries, has less than one-tenth. Man. Yeah. Cool. No say there. Cool voting system. Uh, Some other organizations set up in this. They have the Organization of American States, the OAS. Yeah. Didn't we talk about this one in the Che Guevara episode? Yeah, we mentioned these guys. They were created in 1948 as an anti-communist alliance. (laughs) Cool. Uh, that was, you know, it's not like the only thing they were there to do, but like that was a big part of it. They, to contrast with these other groups, have equal voting. Okay. Every member country gets to vote, but it's still dominated by the United States because the United States contributes more money to it than everyone else. So we could just take our money and go home if they don't do what we like, really. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's just mild threatening. Yeah. It's, yeah. Pretty, pretty much. chill. Uh, broadly speaking, the OAS is focused on liberal priorities, democracy, uh, mm. peace, human rights, free trade, development, a kind of an anti-drug program thing, too. But the main thing it's focused on, of course, is development for capitalism's sake, right? Like yeah, yeah. steer this in the right direction sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, they're the ones that set up the Inter-American Development Bank, which he also talks about. Oh, I thought that was a separate thing. Okay. It's, you know, I guess it's a separate thing, but it was literally created by the OAS. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, These guys suck too. Yeah. Uh, they were set up in 1959. They're kind of like a World Bank because they raise funds by selling the bonds and stuff. Mm-hmm. Those are backed by fees that the member countries pay. Mm-hmm. And also by these weird, these promises that member countries uh, put forth, they like pledge like, oh, yeah, if you need it, we'll pay you this much. But they don't okay. actually have to pay that money unless it's needed. Yeah. Which usually weird. it's not. So you can like write into the budget like, oh, we'll pay you <laughs> this much. million, dollars, yeah. but you don't have to. That's crazy. So they kind of move a lot of fake money around that way. Uh, and anyway, they, they give grants and loans, but they, again, have a lot of conditions on it. He talks about in the book how like... They have the condition of, uh, oh, you have to you have to use this money to buy U.S. goods and things like yeah. that. <laughs> it's insane. It's yes. just like, it's like showing up to a fire and saying, here, I'll put out your fire for me, but you got to buy this water from me first. <laughs> yeah, first and forever. <laughs> and also anytime there's another fire. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty bad. Uh, another cool, cool voting system here. The U.S. is the only member country with veto power. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> neat. Yeah, because votes are determined by capital. So, yeah, that's how it goes. <laughs> All of those, you know, I guess the, the, the criticism that he's leveling in the book is that these groups, it's economic imperialism. These guys are 
governing these countries effectively in some way or influencing them in the direction that the U.S. wants to go. So not only are they controlling these countries through loans and quote unquote Mm -hmm. aid, they're also (laughs) controlling other countries through it, too. Mm -hmm. They give an example in the book that in the OAS, the U.S. needed another vote for something. And so they went to Haiti and gave them an airport on the condition that they vote with them to kick out Cuba from the OAS. Yeah, man. Can't have those commies in there. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not just wheeling and dealing on like a capitalist level. It's also on like a global, really fucked up level. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it's bad. I like this assessment of, uh, of the free market or free trade here. The office in page 237 and 38 says the so-called free play of supply and demand in the so-called international market does not exist. The reality is a dictatorship of one group over the other, always for the benefit of the developed capitalist countries. For sure. Like these are the same people that are whining and crying about free trade. And it's like, this shit is not free. Yeah. Freedom for some people. (laughs) It reminds me of when, when leftists talk about, you know, the dictatorship of the proletariat, people say, oh, you don't want dictatorship. It's like, dude, you have dictatorship <laughs> right now. It's the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Yeah, you just can't see it. Yeah, you call, you know, it's called democracy and everything, but that's what it actually ends up being. It's, just, it's got a coat of paint on it. <laughs> yeah, it's called free trade or whatever, but that's what it actually ends up being is this dictatorship. For sure, for sure. Uh, can I read you more quotes from assholes? I would love it. Welcome to Christine's Asshole Quote Corner. (laughs) First up, we've got David Rockefeller in 1963 saying, The U.S. will arrange its economic aid program in countries showing the greatest inclination to favor the investment climate and will withdraw aid from other countries not showing a satisfactory performance. Damn. So dance for us and... Please us or else. <laughs> Basically, or else. yes. Holding these fucking countries hostage and then not even helping them. Like, to use the fire analogy that we had earlier, that's like making you pay for the water. Oops, it's actually gasoline. It, it's a bigger fire now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I fucked up. All right. Uh, next in our asshole quote corner, we've got Senator Jacob Javits. Quote, Latin America provides an excellent opportunity for the United States to show by inviting Europe to enter that it does not seek a dominant or exclusive position. So Aww. just using other using other countries for bargaining chips, chill, very chill. That's so nice. So you know, nice we, we are. We don't want to be the. We don't want to be in charge. You know, we're we're friendly. We'll let other people play too. Do you want to share this exploitation? I've got some extra. <laughs> <laughs> How many of them are chairing multinational corporations that have operations in both? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can we talk competition? Sure. Let's talk competition. From this section, what I understood, he talks about a few specific examples, as he does, uh, as he's want to do. He loves an example. <laughs> but it seems like the general pattern here is that, one, Things are cheaper in these Latin American countries because they're so poor that it's that whole unemployed masses thing. Like, that's why their wages are low. Yeah. So they produce these goods for very cheaply, and they aren't basically allowed to sell it for more. Or other countries will fucking throw a fit and, like, start shit with them. Yeah, pretty much. Um, They'll put crazy tariffs on stuff to keep it 
ridiculous. Like he was an example of Argentinian and Uruguayan meat. Like that's some of the best fucking meat in the world. Like we all know that. Mm -hmm. But we put all these crazy tariffs and regulations on it in order to protect our like ranchers here. <laughs> Again, when you're talking about free trade, it's free for some and not for <laughs> others, you know? Yeah, because what does that mean? That means you think the labor of a you know, probably maybe white rancher in the United States is worth more than an Argentinian rancher. You think that that labor is worth more. That's what it, it means. Yes, yeah. This sets up this kind of vicious cycle where even when you're trying to build your domestic market or whatever, you have to end up importing stuff, which means your exports are so cheap, right? That's this whole mm -hmm. thing is your exports are always going to be cheap to other places. And, and whatever you're trying to bring in to improve your, improve your production, uh, you can't afford it with yeah. the meager amounts that you're getting for everything that you produce. So you end up having to take out those loans with all the strings attached. You pay more in interest. You're dominated more by the U S and, and, and you're back to, worse than when you started it's yeah and those agreements that you made guess what they're locking you into this cycle even further <laughs> yeah it's bad so he also outlines what he calls the coffee wars uh which i thought this was a really interesting example uh so the u.s and europe you know would buy coffee beans from brazil and africa and they take those beans and they take it home and they concentrate it in u.s and european factories to sell like mm -hmm. as a soluble coffee, like ground coffee. Yeah. Roasted, all that stuff. Folgers. Yeah. <laughs> and then Brazil started trying to make their own soluble coffee, and they f were accused of unfair competition. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> five factories out of the 110 factories worldwide that do this. They wanted five fucking factories. Well, that was unfair competition, man. You Clearly. Know. What was it? How? What would be the argument for that? Just you're doing it and you're not us. Like, is was it that bald faced or was it like? <laughs> I can't think of any other logic that would apply here. Like, I mean, I know that that's literally why they're doing it, but I wondered if they had a justification like, oh, you have a dictatorship or something that we installed. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm trying to think that's from so like crazy. a pure ass. I'm putting on my right, asshole yeah, economist what, hat. Mm -hmm. Like, is it? Oh, it's unfair because like we have to travel with it so it's more expensive and it's like let him fucking sell your own shit <laughs> like it's our coffee like you'd be fucked without it yeah it's just not really a, i don't it doesn't seem to be like a free market argument as to why it would be bad <laughs> i don't know that's funny they ended up having to place a tax on it so it wouldn't outcompete the u.s markets so the u.s made them tax themselves yeah an internal tax <laughs> that's so bad Oh, we got one more organization, LAFTA. LAFTA, the Latin American Free Trade Area. I mean, hey, the U.S. isn't in this one, so maybe it's not as bad. <laughs> oh, oh no, this was the funny one, actually. It is bad. Spoiler alert, still bad. The first LAFTA agreement was signed in 1962 by Argentina, Brazil, Chile, and Uruguay. And the book says, but really it was an agreement between IBM, 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 and IBM. Oh. <laughs> All it did was eliminate import duties so they could build more factories there. Wow. So, Just wrote the whole thing for themselves, basically. Basically, yeah. yeah. Classic. And the, I think one of the arguments he's making in this whole section is that this ends up looking nicer, maybe, but being way more efficient way better for the capitalists like 
we we look at it as maybe like soft imperialism or not as mm-hmm. violent imperialism, but like it's also good for them too. Like it's cheaper. I think one of the subsections says like technocrats are better hold up artists than Marines. Yeah. Yeah. They got a better PR too. <laughs> Cause yeah, again, you can slap on the name of development and like, you know, use all those feel good words like aid. And then mm-hmm. it seems like you're a good guy when it's yeah. like, no, you're not. <laughs> you are making the situation way worse. Yeah. Uh, another thing he talks about in here is the, is modern technology in Mm -hmm. Latin America being kind of another tool of domination, kind of like the old railroads is just like capital intensive technology stuff now. Yeah. He talks about the, the fact, the new factories and stuff that were being built there being actually kind of like outdated or like, you know, secondhand. (laughs) I was confused as, as to why that was the case. Well, I think it would just be like, you're offloading your surplus factory capital, like equipment. Oh, and that way they couldn't take it over and do their own thing too. Right. Well, you got to imagine, right? Your, your factory, your factories or whatever, they get their equipment from somewhere and that place mm-hmm. probably ends up at some point having a little bit of surplus that nobody's buying anymore because he got newer shit. So they can just sell that to the, to the mm. colonized countries. And that's why I said, you know, oh, I went to this factory. It was completely out of date. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I was confused by that. And it's it's just another way to rip them off. Like they have to buy that equipment from you instead of producing it themselves, producing mm. newer and better versions of that. Instead, they're going to buy your old outdated stuff. That sucks, man. And he talks about universities as, you know, this is supposed to be right, a tool for progress. But actually, yeah. it's being used to export the best and the brightest of these countries to then go serve the oppressors. Like even the things it's supposed to be doing, mm. it does a bad job at. You know, it perverts or it corrupts the countries into when they're pursuing their own things that, yeah, you're right, should be good for them, end mm-hmm. up coming around and biting them instead. Okay, yeah, we're going to come help you. We're going to give you this aid. But the aid is actually a factory. Oh, and also the factory sucks. Like, <laughs> Yes, yeah. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh. It's diesel fuel, not just gasoline. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have a cool quote for the cool quote corner. Okay. Simon Bolivar apparently said, we shall never be happy, never. And uh, I feel that, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's talking about that from the point of view of just, right, what has happened to the region. And by this point in the book, we're we're thinking the same thing. Like, there's no fucking way out, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It's just a horrible cycle, as we've said. Because you're thinking like, yeah, what what could we do? Like this, at this point. I think he does kind of do a good job of then tying it together and saying, actually, it seems maybe naive, but I think that there is some sort of a way out. He does Mm -hmm. kind of propose a little bit of, of what he thinks could happen. He starts with an autonomous cultural policy when it is genuine requires and promotes deep changes in all existing structures, Mm -hmm. which to me reads kind of like a, like a cultural kind of nationalism of some sort, like uh, like a Latin American-oriented sense of culture, sense of of um, determining their own path. That's interesting. I think that's interesting because having grown up as a Latinx person, like, we definitely make fun of other, like, Latinx people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, like, colorism. Mm-hmm. There's, like, you make fun of other, like, Spanish countries speakers' and accents yeah. and countries. Like, you're like, oh, that's not mine. Like, 
Yeah, it is this weird disconnected region. And I think that's what your quote on Simone Bolivar is about too, is this, this notion of, like you said, his grand dreams of uniting everything in a pan American union gets crushed, gets picked apart. Every, every country's out for itself. And Mm -hmm. uh, Galliano discusses this saying, you know, that imperialism kind of deforms Latin America by preventing what he calls these territorially united people, preventing them from uniting, even though they share the same continent, like the United States unites all the way across its section of the globe. These guys can't because they had fragmented those economies for their own benefit. The the imperialist masters had divided up and said, you're, you know, we're going to extract this from you. We're going to extract this from you. But you guys are separate things. Mm -hmm. This is where he was talking about, like, the structure of, like, the railroads and the transportation and everything. I thought that was super interesting. Uh, He he was saying that, like, basically to travel to some of these places, you'd have to fucking, like, sail around the entire continent. Because, like, Mm -hmm. there's no railroads that connect these countries that are right fucking next door to each other. Yeah. And that's part of that. That's part of that uh, that intentional division that was mm-hmm. serving a particular purpose, not the people living there, but the foreign capitalists. Because you think about it, if if we've talked about these revolts that happen, like if these revolts had had access to other countries who were on their side, if that war of three nations or whatever had been the other way around, of like war of four nations against Britain, <laughs> yeah, like the that'd war be a different fucking British, story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Che Guevara wanted that too, wanted the whole like Pan-American thing, right? I mean, I can see why. This is the dream, right? And he finally finishes this section, which is the original end of the book. Mm -hmm. Page 261, he says, The task lies in the hands of the dispossessed, the humiliated, the accursed. The Latin American cause is, above all, a social cause. The rebirth of Latin America must start with the overthrow of its masters, country by country. We are entering times of rebellion and change. There are those who believe that destiny rests on the knees of the gods, but the truth is that it confronts the conscience of man with a burning challenge. I mean, earlier you're saying, like, how do they get out of this? And I was like, they they can't unless they fucking get rid of the United States. Parody, whatever, but <laughs> don't come get me. He's basically painting that picture and saying, presenting it almost hopelessly, and then saying, I think this is probably the only the only chance we have is yeah. banding together. I, I don't know. Maybe this is the big thing I keep drawing from it. This is one of the reasons I really love Howard Zinn's People's History is that it keeps presenting that image of people resisting throughout, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the ways that that bears fruit in this book is here at the end when he says, hey, just like all these examples I've shown you of people resisting, yeah, they got crushed. Maybe we won't. Let's try, you know? Yeah, because I've only read parts of of Howard Zinn's people's history. But from what I remember, like I remember hearing about like all these fucking slave rebellions. I had no idea happened. Mm -hmm. And like, there's reasons people don't want you to know about these things. Like they don't want you getting fucking ideas. And like, (laughs) it's literally like, you know, Bacon's rebellion is like a sentence in most like U S history books. Like, man, people are mad about some taxes, whatever, move on. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's it. Yep. And we don't show that this whole time there has been a struggle and, it's, it's much more, I find that most of like mainstream history is much more philosophical based. Like we talked about. In, Idealist, uh, right? Yeah. Like in science, scientific, utopian, you know what I mean? Socialism, utopian and scientific. 
Yes, the one that I read. <laughs> yeah, like the idea of just being idealism and all these abstract concepts like, oh, enlightenment, we were into this at this point. And like, yeah. oh, then we got into this. And then like, some great man just, had a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's all super broad and just baby shit. <laughs> well, you know, this is a great example of that, but in the Latin American context, this is like a non, mm-hmm. this is like a materialist look at why latin america is the way it is yeah and like we don't even fucking cover latin america in education i I knew none of this Uh, yeah i mean it's it's de jure uh covered in in world history but a lot of world history classes don't always get to where they need to go (laughs) yeah it's it's just not like i i keep coming back to i mean i think if we did like imagine if we did study latin american history how the fuck would they sell it so it doesn't sound like because if you actually look at what happened yeah. it's very bad <laughs> yeah yeah i don't there yeah there's a reason i guess why it's left out yeah it's probably why they don't <laughs> don't look there just don't look under the equator everything's fine or it's just or it's glossed over as like unrest instability chaos mm-hmm. it was there we don't know how it happened <laughs> but there was a lot of instability there. Don't worry, guys. We went in, gave them democracy. It's all good now. Yeah. Also, we got richer. Don't worry about that part. <laughs> I don't know how that happened either. <laughs> it, was an, it was an accident. <laughs> History is baffling in an idealist. Like, if you're, yeah. if you're looking at an idealist. If you take out materialism, it is literally... It's just a mishmash. Yeah. So many people like hate history or find it confusing or whatever is because it doesn't make sense if you're just like, and then this guy thought of something like (laughs) it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Or even like, I remember being really frustrated in like world history or art history, like how chapters jump around between place to place. I'm like, okay, what the fuck were the other countries doing while we're talking about this one? Like, yeah, they They don't go back and cover the same time period, but somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. it's just really reductionist. All right. Part three. Part three, seven years after. All right. So part three written seven years after the initial publication of the book. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts here? Oh, man. Well, first off, he says, banned by military dictatorships, which is always a good thing in my book. Yeah. That's, a, uh, that's something I like to look for in a book. <laughs> you can tell a lot about, right? The saying is like, you can tell a lot about somebody by the enemies they make. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so there you go. Although, like he wrote earlier, not all military dictatorships, right? He had that the, one guy. <laughs> the left-wing one, a couple of them. Yeah, there were a few of them. It was interesting. I particularly like this one quote. I suspect that boredom can thus often serve to sanctify the established order. So he's basically talking about how like most history is written really dry. Mm. Most economics is written Especially really dry. Economics. And oh my God. I, I can't even. like Those guys like need to, like, it should be required <laughs> for graduating with a... You have to get like advanced writing degrees, you know, also like you have to take improv classes or something to be like entertaining. <laughs> yes. And like just creative writing. You have to present your thesis as a stand up special in order to get your degree. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine uh, what would Ben Bernanke's uh, oh, stand up title, his Netflix stand up special be called? You know? I don't know, but I would not watch it. Burning it all down. <laughs> Burning it all down. Oh, do you think he's mad that Bernie took that slogan? You know, he's like, oh, I wanted to feel the burn. burn. (laughs) (laughs) It's in my last name. No, but I I think this is so true. And I think it is reflected in like why we do have a lot of liberals that aren't 
overly concerned with economic things or if they mm -hmm. are it's not enough because it's boring and it's wonky and it's like oh my god i don't i don't know and then that is so much of why i am excited about doing this show is because like i'm learning things and yeah once you you know poke your way into that and you realize oh this is the reason for everything like <laughs> Yeah, and I think that it, it kind of serves as a veneer, right? Or a it, it kind of gets you in the mindset of when you tuned out listening to somebody who knew a lot about something drone on, right? Mm -hmm. It sounds like they know what they're talking about. I mean, they're talking about it a lot. They're using big words. <laughs> exactly. They're very boring. You know, it, they're, they're like some sort of school assembly uh, speaker. And you're just like, oh my gosh, like whatever, whatever you <laughs> say, I'm sure it's right. Yeah, yeah. It just, I don't know, it lends authority to it maybe that people are not as willing to question. And I think it's a self-feeding cycle because in order to get into economics, you probably got to be rich. So you're going to like, you know, push forward economics that serve you and your interests. You know, and it's not just that because I mean, yeah, you can get into scholarship, whatever, but ec economics is so tied up with like business yeah, uh, in terms of universities and everything that there's a lot of cross contamination but cross like <laughs> referencing between the business school part and like the economic school part and for sure like that is how your success is measured it's like oh you're a chairman of this bank and oh you did this company or whatever and it's like okay you made out all right but did everyone make out all right and the answer is no yeah yeah economics boring and <laughs> boring on purpose so that it can convince you that it's just too boring to pay attention to and please just let us do our thing and make money i think when we look at like centrists you know like democrats and stuff like that you mm -hmm. there's this tendency to be very wonky and i think that also kind of lends like a veneer like you said to their policies it's like oh you're talking about some complicated tax credit i don't understand it Mm, you're probably smart you probably know what's best yeah it's probably fine yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> like everyone you know was very swayed by elizabeth warren because she has a plan for everything like never mind you can't understand any of the plans and they're actually you know wouldn't be that helpful to a lot of people because there's so many fucking hoops to jump through but mm -hmm. she's got a plan and the the hoops convince people that it would work strangely like perversely mm -hmm. because like if you just go out there and say i think we should give money to people and people are like unrealistic you know or <laughs> if you say i think everybody should have health care people be like how could that how could you pay for that yeah so instead you have to tack on all these weird tax credits and fucking ah uh, just random stuff and we've been taught to expect that from serious policy because mm -hmm. that because the people who would benefit from the quote unquote serious policy want us to think that that's required. You know, they don't want us to think like, Oh, we could actually just like nationalize shit. We yeah, could actually we just, just like it. provide for ourselves, like <laughs> especially us dude, like other countries that are dependent on, like he's talking about in this sort of cycle. Like if they try that, they're going to, you know, it's very likely that they could get crushed by us. So <laughs> we're the crushers. Yeah. If it, who's going to come in and, and stop us, yeah. you know, Besides, like, the military and the, and the national security state. Yeah. <laughs> Which is also very possible. Yeah, that's true. And it will be internally crushed. <laughs> yeah. Neat. Yeah, I, I think he gets into, after after talking about that and talking about how, you know, the, the book was initially received and how he was trying to cut through the boredom, kind of open people's eyes that way, radicalize people. Uh, he talks about 
the the state response, uh, <laughs> more broadly speaking. It says how to stifle the rebellious explosion of the great condemned majority, how to head off those explosions, how to avoid those majorities becoming even larger if the system doesn't function for them. Leaving aside charity, the police remain. Yep. And he starts talking about the crackdowns. He starts talking about the secret police of all these dictatorships, you know, Pinochet and all these guys. Mm Mm-hmm. It, it reminds me, you know, this this crackdown and everything that he's talking about reminds me of like czarist Russia, you know, this ter- means of terror as a as a means of controlling people. He finishes then by saying, you know, that that labor unions, that strikes, that rebellions are stirring in Latin America at the time that he's writing that. And he's saying, you know, this isn't primitive capitalism growing, but this is old, deformed capitalism dying. Hmm. Okay. I thought that was interesting because he's kind of laying out our argument that like we don't have to, we're not moving like from feudalism to capitalism then to socialism. He's saying we're already in this just kind of fucked up version of capitalism that doesn't work the way it's supposed to at all. And so we're just going to kill that and move then, of course, then to socialism. Yeah. I mean, leftists on the internet have seen a lot of these memes of just, it's not really a meme. It's more just like a holding my face in terror of late stage capitalism. Like there's lots Mm -hmm. of Twitter accounts that do that, that share just like these horrifying stories of just like, you know, the GoFundMes for healthcare and just, just there's countless examples of just like, this is not how that should work. I saw one the other day that was someone tweeted at YouTube saying, Hey, I had to watch an ad before how to give CPR or something to my grandma. Like, can you not? And they're like, we're sorry. Uh, You can, get our premium subscription for blah, blah, blah. And it's like, are you kidding me? If you can afford it, yeah, sure. We can help you save your relatives. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I don't know. I want to say that it feels different, but I'm not old enough to know if it feels different. So, Yeah, uh, I don't know. Old people, does it feel different? Tell us. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) That would be a good listener response. There's also a subreddit, I think, that's called Late Stage Capitalism. Probably that contributed to me being becoming more radical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's where Galliano closes the book discussing that, you know, the next possibility is if people do rise up, if people do uh, overthrow the neoliberal order, then they have a chance, you know, they could uh they could institute something under the people's control, a worker state, a post-capitalist something. It's been a while since he wrote that though. We have <laughs> Very limited examples of any similar things happening. I mean, you do have some leftist governments uh, there, but you don't have like a a large scale region wide overthrow of capitalism. Not yet. Not yet. Come on, guys. Listeners, Let's... get to it. Can we? If please? you're in that region, <laughs> please don't go William Walkering your way down there. <laughs> please don't. No. <laughs> no. Remember, we gotta take out us first. <laughs> True. Yeah. Shit, it's our turn. Parody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Final thoughts. The scale is one to ten, but you can't use seven. Okay. I am going to rate this. I'm going to rate it a nine, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I I think this should be fucking required reading in high schools. It completely opened my eyes to the horrors. You know, I knew about, like, the conquest and stuff, but, mm-hmm. like, it's never covered in enough detail. It's always something that we just kind of sweep under the rug for the most part. 
Um, even having grown up in that culture, like we, we said in the first episode, it's still part of that culture. So we don't want to talk about it too much because it's pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it completely opened my eyes to that. And then, you know, furthermore, how strangled these regions really are. Uh, yeah, the only reason it's not a 10 for me is that that one chapter took me fucking months to get through. <sighs> Literally months sat, sitting on my bedside table. I read like three other books while I forgot <laughs> to finish reading this. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only, that one, the IMF section, a little bit dry. But other than that, I, listeners, go read this fucking book. It's very good. Yeah. I'm going to rate it a nine as well. I don't oh. have the dry portion really. Like that was. <laughs> you were fine with it. It was pretty interesting to me. Like I said. The big thing I liked of that was kind of peeling back the veil and being like, oh, damn, this is why these guys do this. Like, mm-hmm. but for me, uh, sequence, there were some sequence issues from the, that confused me. I was just like, oh, what is, uh, we're, we're talking about this now? Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And it just kind of like jumped back and forth a little bit. Yeah. Like time periods wise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I, I kind of didn't care. About that. <laughs> I was just like, cool story. <laughs> I was like, wait, we're talking, but we're talking about a different global economy. I don't, but it was fine. It worked out. That just was initially hard for me to grasp. Other than that, and, and uh, so it's very emotional. Uh, it's, it's very emotional. It's like uh, it's poetic. Mm-hmm. It's written to and kind of to incite to stir your passions. For sure. Like I, I refer to myself frequently as a bag of emotions, and I had days where I couldn't read this book. I'm like, I'm too upset to read about genocide right now. Like I just can't do it. You know, I'm I'm like working on a book about Mexico, and like I I felt very it feels like this book somehow deepened my connection to mexico in ways that i Mm -hmm. like appreciate more now and like i don't know how to explain it it is a very emotional read (laughs) yeah yeah one thing that i initially thought was kind of a weakness was that it's not really heavy on theory it doesn't really Mm -hmm. take too much time to ground like why these things work out the way they do it's just kind of like hey here's some shit that's happening and this happened (laughs) yeah but i think that that's also kind of a strength and it's it's accessible I would, I would be reading this and especially early on, I would just be like, Abby, uh, do you know that I would just read a passage? <laughs> I would just be like, yeah. this is uh, something about coffee growers, uh, yeah. really hit her because now she'll only buy a uh, fair trade coffee. <laughs> like, I'm just like, if this could be a, a door, a, a kind of foot in the door for people who are not of our political persuasion, that could be very handy. I think so. I mean, I did the same thing with my spouse. I very much was just leaning over like, hey, this. let me read you this horrible fact. And <laughs> it's yeah. just, I mean, again, I think I said this last episode too, but for every example we gave here, there are several more. Like it is chocked mm-hmm. full of these stories and it really shows a pattern. And then I, I liked that. Like I liked how many examples he gave because it kind of, to me, it encouraged me to think of further examples too. Like I made a lot of connections about like, oh, this is why, you know, like our clothes are so cheap because of the mm-hmm. same thing. Like, yeah. And I, I think that is kind of the benefit too of not putting it in like abstract theory terms, you know? Yeah. It's another way, I guess, because theory is a way to do that too. But this mm-hmm. is another way to provide a lens for people to see the world. I think the, the, the most powerful things that we've read here are, well, we've had the benefit of all of them <laughs> being this way. <laughs> but we've experienced this when we've read theory before. Uh, and when we're reading this, I think that one of the big benefits we get from it is coming away with a lens of seeing the world, mm-hmm. you know, definitely of applying it and saying like, damn, that's why this thing happens. That's why these groups are trying to do this thing. Like it makes 
makes the world make more sense to us. Yeah, I, I think one of the big things I took from it was he, you know, painstakingly lays out all of the horrors of the conquest and also the racism that was justifying it. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to draw that line to racism justifying this today. Like, yep. it's just, it's obvious. Yeah. And without an understanding, you can see why people would jump to those sorts of racist conclusions. If you don't know why any of this happening, you might be like, well, that's just how people there are, you know, mm-hmm. they, you know, or, or like idealist explanations like, oh, they don't have strong traditions of democracy or whatever, or constitutions. <laughs> I or wonder <norms>. why. <laughs> yeah. Like if you, if you don't understand what's actually happening, then yeah, you end up with these stupid explanations. Yeah. Another, another mind blowing moment for me was the whole military industrial complex thing. Like mm-hmm. the whole crazy cycle of like, all right, we need to prop up this military that's funded by private corporations. I know we'll get things for super cheap. Oh, how do we get things for super cheap? We use the military to get things <laughs> for super cheap. It's just this Ouroboros. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, I mean, that's what it is, man. It's a death machine. Yeah. We found the perpetual motion machine and it is death. Yeah, yeah. And bonus points of the country you're invading tried socialism for a second. Yeah. That's <laughs> two birds with one stone there. Yeah, you get Cheap the resource. Materials, <laughs> dead socialists. That's like Empire's favorite thing. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, that was a bummer note. <laughs> Don't forget the death machine. Yeah, but we could rise up and overthrow it and should. That's the hope anyway. Anyway, please read this book. <laughs> yeah, Open Bands of Latin America by Eduardo Galeano. It's great. It's you good. should read it. Oh, there's a Hugo Chavez quote on the cover. Yeah, he famously gave this book to Barack Obama. I don't think he paid attention. <laughs> I don't think he read it, man. Barack Obama derived zero lessons from this book. If, if he, he read, read it, it, he just like laughed the whole time or he was... Or got ideas from it. <laughs> you know i should invade that country (laughs) you know libya is looking pretty good over there with resources (laughs) Uh, and then i'll offer them some aid it'll be great (laughs) we'll get the world bank in in on this they'll help out (laughs) i forgot how good your obama impression is we haven't had cause to hear it in a long time so Uh, well um he's making a comeback i guess i am uh nearing completion of of his autobiography (sighs) volume one or whatever it is my Christmas gift to you. I got to tell you, I started that while doing research on Lennon for our Lennon episode. <laughs> and so you, you talk about the fucking whiplash of listening <laughs> to this guy talk about how, you know, oh, I came in with ideals and I realized that, you know, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to change if I'm going to play Dude, politics in Chicago. Fucking and, what is to be done. <laughs> and yeah, and, and I'm also reading about this guy who's like constantly getting, getting his revolutionary groups over you know uh raided by the police (laughs) and i'm just like wow (laughs) that's insane yeah all right next week i think we're gonna kind of pardon my pun we're gonna continue in a similar vein oh (laughs) yeah your pun is pardoned i guess you know if listeners can hear there is actually the garbage truck outside i'll just go ahead and take myself out and put myself inside of that (laughs) thank you thank you (laughs) Uh, yeah, we're going to continue in a similar vein. And just like you like, I know, I know how we're big fans of imperialism here. Mm, yeah, my fave. 
Mm-hmm. Imperialism's pretty much my least favorite thing. <laughs> uh, I know that one of your least favorite things is charity. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into charity. Good. Good. This is fun. I have family members who work in charity, so it's fun when I talk about this and whenever <laughs> I've had a few glasses of wine. <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk about the implications there. What's What are the pros and cons, but kind of what what, are, what should socialists, what should leftists, what should our view, uh, what should we think of charity? So yeah, we can look forward to that. In the meantime, you can find us online. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. If you want to send us an email, that is teachmecommunism at gmail.com. That's where you can suggest future episode topics. Those are great. We especially love like the random ones. Like I have someone talking about like something in Finland. Like I've never heard of that. So like send us your weird stuff. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. I'm going to rephrase that. Don't send us that much weird stuff. You know what I mean? More weird obscure, stuff. Yeah, obscure, obscure leftist material. <laughs> anyway uh you can also just compliment us or whatever if you want to compliment us in a more public fashion which i like you can leave us a review on apple Podcasts, right oh, and yeah. review super helpful way for people to find the show even if you're not an apple user you can still leave a review so don't let that hold you back mm-hmm. we are on youtube just search for us there <laughs> that's how you want to listen to your podcast and we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash teachmecommunism. For $5 a month, you get access to our notes for this episode. Both of us wrote notes. You get double the notes for $5. Heck yeah. Yeah. It's pretty beefy. I I wrote a lot of quotes and shit because I was very angry. And stuff that we didn't even get to in the episode, really. So Yeah, we skipped around a bit. Scrap thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Bonus. The proceeds from Patreon will go to a mutual aid organization at the end of the year. Uh, This past year, we were able to donate $116 to Feed the People Dallas, which is a great Black and Latinx-led mutual aid fund. Hell yeah. Solidarity, not charity. Hell yeah. We're going to talk why next week. (laughs) (laughs) That's it, right? Yeah, that's it. Uh, Great discussion, as always. Thanks. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in to this episode you can catch us next week on another episode of teach me communism where the class struggle is always in session stay angry about genocide remember imperialism it sucks for sure